6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Jude, verse 5. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Guys, have you given yourselves for your wife? But here he's speaking of Christ, loved the church, and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it. How? How is Christ cleansing the church? With the washing of the water by the word. This is not a verse on baptism. It's a word on Bible study devotions, the Word. The way you wash yourself is with your with the Word. We use that model all the way through. When we studied the book of Revelation, especially in the chapter 4, the throne of God, I think I made reference to the analogy the Holy Spirit draws between the laver and the glassy sea. The laver in the Old Testament was God's Word. We wash in it. The glassy sea, by then with washings over, we're redeemed. What do we do then? We stand on it pun, isn't it? That's bizarre. It's a pun. Designed by the Holy Spirit. That word which we wash in now, we stand on then. Interesting, isn't it? Which leads me to one other uh, verse that you should have in your repertoire, and that's the Christian's bar of soap. If you need washing, where do you find the Christian's bar of soap? How do you scrub up? There's a specific verse that will solve your problem for you. It's 1 John 1.9 is the Christian's bar of soap. 1 John 1.9, the Christian's bar of soap. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So as you study this and you become frightened, good heavens, I've done that. Have I lost my salvation? Scurry quickly to 1 John 1, 9, and scrub up. Confess your sins, and he is faithful. It's his faithfulness that's your refuge, not yours. Your faith is a gift from him. If you're faithful, don't get smug, because Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells you it was a gift. Nothing you did. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, it's because the Holy Spirit gave it to you. For by grace ye are saved through faith, and that, that is the faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift. Why? So that no flesh can boast. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, part A, part B, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Boy, I'm grateful for that cleansing, because he's completely does it right. Now, we have, you know, sort of rambled here, um, and those of you that know my capacity for library research are relieved because I could have waltzed out all kinds of other obscure things that would probably have no practical benefit for you when we're talking about, we're talking about Israel in the wilderness. Boy, that can go on for a semester, you know. 
So I felt I seemed appropriate in verse 5 to, in fact, explore the lessons of Israel. But I want to, before we, we're going to go on next time to spook show time, verse 6. But before we do, I don't want to leave the history of Israel, since this is the burden of this letter, is apostasy. I want to share with you something that's going on in the body of Christ. And so it's sort of a parenthesis, but it's appropriate at this time, both because of the verse 5, but also because of the whole tenor of this letter. And we'll talk more about it. We won't, we won't exhaust the subject tonight. But let me describe some things to you. The early church, somewhere along the way, and I'm not, I didn't do enough historical research to know exactly when the errors started to creep in. I think it was Augustine somewhere along the way. The Christian church got it into its head that the Jews crucified their Messiah. There was a notion emerging that the promises that were made to Israel were forfeited because she rejected and crucified her Messiah. And those promises devolved upon the church. And the spiritual Israel idea, and there are aspects of that that are valid, don't misunderstand me, but that theme predominated from roughly the days of Augustine onwards throughout the denominational Christian church and became the excuse for anti-Semitism. It became the theme by which the Crusaders could have contest, contests to see how many Jewish babies they could get on a sword. It became the, the trauma that today still represents a cultural gap between people of Jewish background and so-called Christians. Bear in mind, in their mind, a Gentile is equivalent to a Christian. Hitler was a Christian. The writings of Nietzsche and others laid the philosophical groundwork on top of that for what ultimately became the Holocaust. Okay? The philosophical roots for the, the abuse of mankind, which we call the Holocaust, specifically aimed at Israel or Judaism, had its roots in the Christian church of some centuries prior. So if you, are you with me so far? You and I in this body, in fact, my wife and I were singing some of the songs we sang tonight, we sang for the first time here at Calvary Chapel 18 years ago. It was before the tent, it was up the street, you know, all of that. You and I have the benefit of a rediscovery of the scripture or the scripture's posture on Israel. We recognize that the promises that God made to Israel, some of them, the important ones, were unconditional. Her promise to the land was unconditional. The promise that the angel Gabriel gave to Mary, that we'll celebrate shortly at Christmas, was that her child was to sit on David's throne. That's not the father's throne. That's not a lot of other things. It's a political throne that did not exist at the time Mary was, you know, that, that there was not a throne of David at that time. Herod was not Jewish. He was a man. Herod did not sit on David's throne. So there's some issues here, unconditional promises that need to be fulfilled. I don't want to badger all of these because most of you in this room are aware of those. And if not, you're in for the, one of the most exciting discoveries around. Um, 
Israel, you and I as students of the Bible, know that Israel is God's time clock. You can tell what time it is in history by what's going on in Israel. Are they in favor? Are they dispersed? Are they being regathered, etc.? The promise to Isaiah in chapter 11 was, when I regather my people the second time, they'll never again be uprooted. The first regathering was after Babylon. The second regathering started on May 14th of 1948, celebrating its 40th year next summer. Kind of interesting time. Jesus, the week he was crucified, wept over Jerusalem and predicted that it would be trampled down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. That's in several places, but mostly com most commonly quoted of Luke 21, verse 24. Now, why am I going through all this? Because most of you that have been with us for some time know this is just, you know, this is, you know, Israel and prophecy 1A, basics. Let me tell you what's going on in the body of Christ. There are some doctrines emerging, and these doctrines have some strange aspects. I'm not one of these guys that gets hung up with this doctrinal shift or that. I've seen too many come and go, so I'm just not on that kick anymore. I mean, it's just not where I'm oriented. So I usually don't get concerned. This one that's emerging scares me to death for several reasons. First of all, who I'm speaking to goes by several names. You will hear people talk about kingdom now theology. You will hear people talk about dominion theology. This theology that's widely growing, much to my amazement, is permeating the body like AIDS. And it has some similarities, strangely enough. It was just a, a figure of speech, but it has some strange... It's not only widely growing, it's closet. Many of the major leaders in the evangelical movement, in the biblically fundamental movement, and in the charismatic movement, espouse kingdom theology and will not admit it to their congregations. It surfaces. You have to watch for it. And the privacy of their own councils, they discuss it. And kingdom theology, the reason it has those names, it's a view that the church, these leaders are returning to, that it's time that the Christian church got politically active, that it's the mission of the church to take over and straighten out the sick world. Now, much of what they espouse sounds good at first until you listen very carefully. It's a re of the old, old theology that derailed the Christian church for centuries. The notion that it's the church's destiny to rule on this planet Earth. That we rule when the Lord returns. Now, why am I getting into this here? For several reasons. It's very widespread. It shocks me to discover how widespread it is, and it goes by many names. Elements of that theology have many different dimensions. The emergence of the church as the active political that the linking of the church's mission with active political ambition is part of the thing that should throw up a caution flag, because that isn't how I read the New Testament. But let me give you just the root yardstick, and that's what kingdom theology says about Israel, and this is why it's closeted. The kingdom theology proponents argue that Israel's an imposter, she has no right to the land, and what kingdom theology and the dominion theology is laying is the roots for an anti-Semitic movement within the Christian church. And I find that frightening sociologically because we're setting the stage for another Holocaust. Why am I concerned about that? Because I know from prophecy 
that Jesus Christ, when, when the disciples came to him privately and said, how will we know when you're coming back? And he gives them that two-chapter private, there were actually four, four of them, uh, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew came to him privately. As recorded in Mark 13, Matthew 24, and Luke 21, the two chapters in each case, that so-called Olivet Discourse. He points out that there will be a time of trouble such as the world had never seen to that time or ever would see again. He's quoting there from Daniel, the book of Daniel. And his remark gives that period of time its label among Bible scholars, the so-called Great Tribulation. You and I throw that, if we're in prophecy studies, we throw that remark around all the time, the Great Tribulation. Where are we getting that? From Christ's quotation of Daniel in, in Matthew 24 and 25. What's the focus of the Tribulation? Not the world at large. The Old Testament has a synonym for that. It calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. Israel is set for a time of trouble that was never seen to that day or ever would be seen again, and that day is yet future. That means that Israel is being set up for something that will make the time in Germany look like a picnic. And what's setting the stage for that is the theology that's starting to pervade what you and I would call the denominational Christian church. And what's amazing about this is it's so unbiblical in 17 other ways that you're amazed that biblically fundamental people can embrace these ideas, especially since we have 1,900 years of church history to look back on and realize the errors that it leads to. Now, we don't have time to go through the whole thing. I want you to be alerted to it. I want you to keep your antenna up. I want you to keep your commitments to theology cautious and tested by the Scripture. Because if I'm correct, we're moving into an era in which we're going to be challenged. Most people that are hearing my voice on tape or whatever may not have the benefit of a biblically sound environment like you and I enjoy here. I'd be very surprised if any of this grabs any, you know, can take any root here. But it is taking root in some amazing congregations I have, have knowledge of. Therefore, you want your caution flag flying. And if I'm right, this is not just one of these theological fads that come and go. There's dozens of them by dozens of names. They happen not to be my particular concern. This one does, because I think it's prophetically relevant. If I'm right, it's setting the stage for 2 Thessalonians 2. It's setting the stage for the lie. I'd like you to turn with me to Ezekiel 36. I'm going to take just one dimension of the so-called dominion theology or kingdom now theology, that's it's dealing with Israel. And not only do I want to remind you that the promises to Israel throughout the Scripture, throughout the Torah, and certainly throughout Ezekiel, pertain to Israel as it sits the land, but I want to call your attention to the way the Lord talks about it to Israel. God is going to keep his promises to Israel, not because Israel deserves it. I want This occurs several places in the Scripture, but I've chosen Ezekiel 36. I'd like you to pick up with me. Well, incidentally, let's just start to take the first couple of verses to give you the flavor of the chapter. It's talking about the restoration of Israel to the land. Chapter 36, verse 1. Also thou, son of man, prophesy unto the mountains of Israel, and say... Ye mountains of Israel, hear ye the word of the Lord. This is typical Ezekiel style, if you're familiar with Ezekiel. Verse 2. Thus saith the Lord God, because the enemy hath said against you, Aha! Even the ancient high places are ours in possession. 
See, there's a claim, a claim on the land. Sound like front page stuff, doesn't it? We'll skip ahead in this, and it talks about the whole fact that God is, has his hand in Israel, and a lot, a lot of interesting things he's going to have. Pick it up on verse 17. Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own way and by their doings. Their way was before me as the uncleanness of a defiled woman. This is God talking about Israel. He's talking about blessing them in their land. But in this passage, he's calling their attention to the fact that when they were here before, they offended him. Israel doesn't have any glowing history of faithfulness to God throughout the Old Testament. We saw the wilderness thing. There's the whole history of Israel is one of failure of all kinds. And God's calling their attention to it in verse 17. Look what happens when you get down to verse 21. God is saying, but I had pity for Israel. No, for I had pity for my holy name which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations, to which they went. Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes. Do not what? Bring them back in the land and glorify them. He's not doing it because Israel's so faithful. He's not doing it because they're so great. He says, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for my holy namesake which ye have profaned among the nations to which ye went. And I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the nations, which ye have profaned in the midst of them. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. When we study Ezekiel 36, which is obviously the prelude to Ezekiel 38, and you know all that, the thing that you can miss as you go through Ezekiel is that God is not going to bring Israel back in the land and keep these promises because they earned it. Quite the contrary. He describes in 36 and 37 that they'll be brought back into land but in unbelief. And they are there. They're secular humanists. Deep passion for human rights and all that. I'm not mocking them, but they're not there except for some fringe groups, they're not there as an obedience to the command of God. And God is saying, I am going to fulfill my promises, not because you deserve it, but because those promises were made before the world. And the world knows I made those promises, and I'm going to keep them for my namesake, not yours. So when God wipes out five-sixths of the Soviet forces moving into Israel, it isn't because Israel's so neat. It's because God is going to demonstrate in Ezekiel 38 and 39, that he is going to keep his promises that he made to this ancient people. We go through the whole thing. God is going to visibly move in your lifetime and mine, maybe in the next several years, certainly in the next decade or two, clearly visibly, to deal with Israel. And he's doing it not because Israel's right, not because they're faithful, not because of anything about them at all. He says, historically you grieved me, you profane my name among the nations that you were sent, they haven't been some kind of pillar of witness to the existence of Almighty God. He's going to keep his promises because the world knows he made those promises. And he's doing it for his name's sake. And I don't think he's going to mess around. Now, when the Christian church starts to weave a theme that Israel is an imposter in the land, they really don't have these claims. That's not the Israel that God talks about. The promises of Israel really come upon the church. They start getting that all muddied up. 
it scares me to death, not only because it's wrong and it'll cause error, but they're setting the stage for the great apostasy of the end times. The apostasy that the New Testament talks about, the apostasy that the Old Testament talks about, the apostasy that not only will be an apostasy vis-a-vis -a, -vis a, a, a departure from a saving faith in Jesus Christ, but an apostasy which will lead to the lie which itself will be a fulfillment of prophecy that Jesus Christ and the other and the, and the writers of the epistles and so forth speak so eloquently of. So I, I call your attention to that because, A, it's coming. It's not only a heresy, but it's prophetically a cornerstone. In fact, probably the last missing piece in the scenario is surfacing and is visible. And I call it to your attention because it's secret. There are going to be some books published. There are, fortunately for the body of Christ, some fairly outspoken people who will mention name names and do the right research to do this properly, so I'm not about to get left here tonight. But be prepared to be startled and shocked by the kinds of people who are common household names in the Christian community who are secretly espousing this theology and are uh, going to mislead and, and uh, injure the body of Christ. So I'll leave that with you. Now, we got through Jude 5. Next time, we got Jude 6. <laughs> and I've been looking forward to this because this gives me a license to get into this spookiest stuff you can imagine. Now, those of you that have been with me for some years know that I'm capable of some really weird views. And so um, next time we're going to get into some strange things. We're going to talk about the angels who kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. Okay, and we're going to have them contrasted with verse 7, giving themselves to strange flesh. So the kind of questions we're going to deal with next time will have to do with our demons and fallen angels the same thing. I don't think so. What's the difference between a fallen angel and a demon? Demons seem to aspire to body possession. The angels don't. And these angels here are confined. I don't have any evidence that the demons of Satan are confined at all. They seem to be, you know, some people joke, if they are, the chains are too long. Um, and um, so what's the difference between demons and fallen angels? And, and what are, what's, what's going on here? And this will raise, of course, the whole issue, why did God have to send a flood on the earth? And why was Noah changed? What was unique about Noah? There's one little hint. We're getting into, in other words, one of the things you want to do for next time is read Genesis 6. Why was there a flood? What was really going on? We have all these legends and folklore, especially embodied in the Greek mythology, about demigods, giants. What's all that about? And what are the Nephilim, really? And what was going on there, in, even in the days of Joshua? What's all that? We're going to get into some of that next time. So you might want to read Genesis 6. You might also like to familiarize yourself with the second chapter of Peter's second letter. He also speaks of apparently the same thing that Jude is talking about, 2 Peter 2. Those of you that have an appetite for this may want to review your notes on Isaiah 14, the origin of Lucifer and his ambitions and his destiny. Those of you that want to go further, read Ezekiel 28, 
In both cases, Isaiah and Ezekiel are talking to a king, in one case of Babylon, in one case of other Tyre, but it's clear that the language suddenly shifts and goes far beyond the local thing and goes into the spiritual powers behind that and clearly is talking about none other than Satan himself. And in that dialogue, in, in Ezekiel, it's clearly that the king of Babylon was not in Eden, and that's who he's talking to. Well, you were in Eden and so forth. That certainly wasn't the king of Babylon. You realize the language pierces the local construct to go into something much deeper, and we get some insights. We get those Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 are key insights. And what is this? What is a fallen angel? What do we mean by that? And if you from that, you can go into Revelation 12, Satan's rebellion, and the third of the angels that fell with him. Are those angels demons? It's not clear. These fallen angels are shackled. Are they the ones that get released in Revelation 9? So if you want to do your notes, those of you that are sort of have an appetite for this weird stuff, uh, you might reread your notes or, uh, on, on Revelation 9 and 12, certainly on uh, Genesis 6 and 2 Peter 2, and we will use next time as our excuse to poke around the murky corners of the book of Genesis and, and see what comes out of that. And if any of you felt that Chuck Missler has a tendency to get into some strange traveled by roads, I'll, be, I'll certainly be guilty of it next time because we'll, we'll use that as our excuse to, to glean what insights we can. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Book of Jude, interesting book. Jude uh, takes for granted that we have a command of the Scripture some people would say that Jude assumes you know some of the books of the Apocrypha. I'm going to try to puncture that idea as we go. I believe that everything in Jude can be dealt with from the scriptures you have in your hand. You do not have to go into the book of Enoch or the book of the Assumption of Moses or any of that stuff. For those of you that, like I do, collect books on that stuff, that's fine, but they're useless from a spiritual point of view, in my opinion, because they're apocryphal. We're going to be very comfortable with these very strange things that Jude surfaces without getting anywhere outside the 66 books written by the 40 guys that uh, produced the product that's in your lap. So relax on that issue. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jude. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.